This lesson is on unrestricted political warfare. This will, lesson will take some of the themes that we've had from last semester. So that's influence warfare for some folks and information warfare and strategy for our CIC folks. We're going to reintroduce those ideas. You will not be at a disadvantage if you did not receive those classes. In fact, you will be free from a number of biases. Previously, we looked at influence warfare, focusing mostly on Chinese influence today in great power competition. Today, this week, this lesson will be a deep dive into the essence of unrestricted political warfare and how we can use it through our value system. This lesson is about the strategic mindset for subversive warfare. And that is to open up our aperture to the almost limitless, unorthodox combinations of ways and means to attain limited objectives. Now, the translation for unrestricted political warfare, or the book specifically, Unrestricted Warfare, is a misnomer. It does not mean all-out political warfare. Instead, it means using creative combinations of ways and means beyond traditional dime frameworks in order to achieve limited objectives, but never to exceed these objectives, which is extremely difficult. Never to cause backlash, never to escalate tensions. In this lesson, we will not be bound only to CCP's version of unrestricted warfare, but instead to the concept itself that is used in various ways by all players of great power competition and regional power competitions the world over. Actually, our case study in our lesson in seminar will be the U.S. employment of so-called unrestricted political warfare in relatively recent history to unearth the techniques and methods used in unrestricted warfare in general. We'll have the rest of the semester to focus on Beijing, of course, but first we must look through the unrestricted warfare lens itself. For the readings, of course, we have the reading from Unrestricted Warfare. Many of you have done this reading a number of times. Some of us, it's new. This book is nothing new. It is a retelling of an old story, adding in the elements of cyber, international corporations, and other modern incarnations uh, that we see in political warfare. But basically, it is an updated or retelling of the 11th century BCE, story of the six secret teachings. That's your second reading. Then the third reading from the Mayans provides both a literal and figurative lesson on how to win without war by using stealth and deception, by using means beyond what is considered in our normal dime paradigm to disarm and undermine the morale of a sleeping enemy force, causing the adversary to be without power by subtle stratagems when that adversary especially is distracted, diverted. To eat away and disempower the morale centers of gravity of an adversary, disarm the adversary without a fight. And a couple passages from Unrestricted Warfare that, in my opinion, really grabs the heart of this art. And I quote, We can only shake off taboos and enter an area of free choice of means, the beyond limits realm, if we complete our picture of the concept of beyond limits. We cannot achieve objectives merely by way of ready 
made means. We need to create new means to achieve objectives. Beyond Limits ideology expands as one pleases. The range of selection and the method of use of measures. To employ measures beyond restrictions, beyond boundaries, to accomplish, importantly, limited objectives. Thus, the limited must be pursued by way of the unlimited. So in that text, in the first reading we have, we're focusing on, and I quote, on achieving objectives not merely by way of ready-made means to accomplish or employ measures beyond restrictions. And this rejects the suppositions of many strategy scholars, such as Professor John Lewis Gaddis at Yale, who supposes, and I quote from his book on grand strategy, means, though, are stubbornly finite. They're boots on the ground, ships in the sea, and the bodies required to fill them. So unrestricted warfare challenges this notion of restricted means, which is very often a mainstay in much strategy education. Not saying it's wrong, not saying it's right, but certainly there's a challenge to it. And this is a throwback to China's The 36 Stratagem, which talks about, and I quote, while carrying out your plans, you need to be flexible enough to take advantage of any opportunity that presents itself. So however small, however slight. Now, the mindset of anything goes to reach an end state, especially if it does not involve the costly deaths of soldiers in warfare, for example, is epitomized in Genghis Khan's approach to warfare, which in part took lessons from and taught also lessons from Chinese military historians. And I quote from Weatherford, the Mongols did not find honor in fighting. They found honor in winning. They had a single goal in every campaign total victory. Towards this end, it did not matter what tactics were used against the enemy or how the battles were fought or avoided being fought, importantly. Winning by clever deception or cruel trickery was still winning and carried no stain on the bravery of the warriors. The mindset of subversive strategies is unconcerned with so-called valor on the battlefield. Subversion looks to almost limitless means that are inexpensive with potential for good return on investment. This will include subtly supporting fifth columns. Those are friendly networks within an adversary state, perhaps. Fellow travelers, foreign influencers whose goals happen to be in consonant with ours, for example. According to Ralph Sawyer in his book, The Tao of Deception, he says that unrestricted warfare falls squarely into the Chinese tradition of total warfare. I would add to this, it falls squarely into the tradition of warfare in a number of civilizations to include in Egypt going back, going back to 14th century BCE. But Sauer goes on, referencing in this case just China, the battlefield no longer artificially confined. Conventional restraints should be ignored and every possible means systemically employed to wrest victory with effectiveness being the only criteria for judging appropriateness. Ruthless causing disaffection and chaos in the manner of what we might term the ruthless practice of efficient warfare. And now this is a review of Sauer's book, 
by David Graff at Kansas State University, 2007. And I quote, Sauer correctly points out Sun Tzu's basic strategy entailing manipulating the enemy in order to create the opportunity for an easy victory and then applying maximum power to the appropriate moment. Deception is vital to manipulating the enemy and achieving all of these objectives. According to Graf in Chinese history, deception operations range from the simple feigned flight and ambush to highly complex disinformation campaigns, causing rulers to distrust and replace their most capable generals. Efforts hinging on surprise and the creation and exploitation of misperception were and are labeled by the Chinese as qi, very similar to the, uh, in this sense, similar to the old English definition or meaning of the word influence and somewhat similar to the ancient Greek idea of metis. The chi translates as unorthodox. I'm going off with uh, continuing on with Graf uh, and his explanation of Sauer's texts. Uh, for unorthodox, other renderings have included indirect, irregular, and unexpected. Its polar opposite is Chang, the orthodox, the direct, the regular, the expected, and the straightforward. He goes on to say an interesting pattern noted in Sauer, this is on his book of Tao of Deception, is the tendency of some later commentators to understand Qi and Chen in rigid mechanical ways, even designated spe designating specific units or troop formations in these terms, whereas the original concept was flexible in the extreme. As the enemy's perception changed, the Cheng effort transformed into a Qi effort and vice versa. The conceptual framework embracing both Qi and Cheng, both the direct and the indirect, the orthodox and the unorthodox, the top down and the bottom up, had become orthodoxy. Going back to uh, Trump from 2020, as he stated, China's party state controls the world's most heavily resourced set of propaganda tools. And this plays very much into, again, the marriage or the use of the orthodox and the unorthodox, the marriage of the indirect and the direct uh, in a combination that makes sense at any given point in time, given a specific objective. He said, Beijing communicates its narrative through state-run television, print, radio, and online organizations whose presence is proliferating in the United States and around the world. Beyond the media, the CCP uses a range of actors to advance its interests in the United States and other open democracies. The CCP, united front organizations and agents target businesses, universities, think tanks, scholars, journalists, and local, state, and federal officials in the United States and around the world attempting to influence discourse and restrict external influence inside the PRC. And we see this not only with China and great power competition, but with a number of other players. For example, going to a scholar of Russian active measures, which will be a focus in lesson four. But nonetheless, it's the use of this unrestricted warfare. And I'm quoting here Bogdanov talking about the use of all public institutions, mass media, religious organizations, cultural institutions, non-governmental organizations, public movements, and even grants.
So this idea of unrestricted warfare challenging the idea of a finite resources and means or finite ways and means, this marriage of the direct and the indirect, the bottom up and the top down, the unorthodox and the orthodox, creating new creative uh, combinations of ways and means. What does this mean for us? Well, through our lens, if you will, and through our value system, first and most importantly, perhaps it implies not necessarily just subversion, subterfuge, and sabotage. Perhaps we're looking through the lens of truth, trust, and transparency, a big tent mentality, reaching out to communities of interest that are not taught in traditional dime education, such as the U.S. Agency for International Development, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, who have officers on uh, uh, every continent around the world, in some cases to include Antarctica, but certainly on the six continents where there is uh, active engagements in great power competition, law enforcement, Department of Education grant programs, etc. And so I also want to finish off with a couple ideas about this marriage between the qi and the cheng, or the metis and strength. And if we go back to Angela Codvila, in 2007, he suggests that Sun Tzu proposed that the supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. According to him, this advice seems to class with Clausewitz's description of war as an act of violence pushed to its utmost bounds. He suggests that the two conceptions are not contradictory. He says that here, Clausewitz refers to fighting, but fighting is a tool of war and not war itself, compatible with Sun Tzu's vision of war. What is important, according to Professor Kudvila, is to select the means which is the most suitable under the given uh, conditions. So Lawrence Friedman talks about this powerful dichotomy between the physical and the mental, between, again, the chi and the chang, or the bi and the metis uh, in Greek, and talks about it's more than just using one or the other. It's seeking victory in the physical domain and the mental, using strength and using smart power, depending on courage and imagination, going about strategy directly and indirectly, using honor in some cases as well as deception. And as a very final note, I want to explain what this might look like also on the ground, not just through the lens of truth, transparency, and trust, like I said earlier. And this kind of calls back to the Mayan reading specifically, which I think really captures, in my personal opinion, you're welcome to push back and disagree, in my personal opinion, really captures the essence of what unrestricted political warfare can be. And so I'm going to go back to Michael Pillsbury's book, The 100-Year Marathon, and the lessons that he gives us that I think transcends just the Chinese approach to warfare. And these are five phenomenon or phenomena to consider. One, induce complacency. And I quote from Pillsbury, avoid alerting your opponent, should never provoke prematurely, should never provide one's true intentions openly, but can be completely guarded until the ideal moment. Two, be patient for decades or longer. Decisive victories rarely are achieved quickly. Victory sometimes is achieved only after many decades. It's a waiting game. 
And I go on. Number three from Pillsbury, manipulate your opponent's advisors. Turn the opponent's house in on itself. Win over influential advisors. Surround the opponent's leadership apparatus. Four, military might is not critical. Certainly, the Chinese strategy advocates targeting an enemy's weak points, biding one's time, and then finally coming back around towards the beginning of this podcast to this idea of qi, as described by Pillsbury here and earlier from Sauer. Qi is the indirect, the unseen, and the patient strategies, deceiving others into doing your bidding, waiting for the point of maximum opportunity to strike. Thank you.